Let's start like this. It's to say that you were made to be indispensable. I believe that with all of my heart that each of us were made to play an essential role in the world, that this world cannot be what it was meant to be without you. Now, I know that one perspective would be to say that we each are just one of 125 billion people who have lived on this planet and that when we die, the world will go on without us. And of course, it will. So then some would say that it's not really proper for me to refer to each of us as indispensable. Yet, there's ample evidence in scripture that God placed each of us here at this time and this place to play, I think it'd be proper to say, a necessary role in his life and in his unfolding purposes in this world. I believe that you are indispensable to God. The prophet Jeremiah said something that in some way I think each of us would have the right to say. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I think that each of us should be able to say that of ourselves, that before we were formed in the womb, God knew us. And that God, before we were even born, he set us apart. I like, as many of you know, to read uh, and particularly enjoy reading great biographies and autobiographies of significant people. I particularly enjoy reading uh, the, the works of past U.S. presidents from all sides of the political spectrum. Some time ago, I read George W. Bush's autobiographical book, Decision Points. And I was struck by his comments about how the life of his parents and their entire family was forever changed by the death of his sister, Robin, all the way back in 1953. She was just three years old. And it moved me, and it has moved me, as I've heard the family reference this over the years, but it moved me as I read this book, how that though his parents uh, went on from that loss to achieve the heights of success in this world, including his dad becoming, of course, a president of the United States. And though they had four children who lived full lives, including one becoming the president of the United States, another a governor, and so on, they still had a hole in their hearts because they lost Robin. Almost 60 years before he wrote about this, they lost a three-year-old daughter, and though their lives have been wonderful, they haven't been the same. Why? Because Robin was irreplaceable. Now, I wanna tell all of us something that should be obvious to each of us, but often isn't. You have a place in the heart of God that can be filled only with you. I don't know how he keeps track of all of his kids, but somehow he does. And each of us in our own way is uniquely special to him. Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Don't be afraid, Jesus said, you are worth more than many sparrows. 
He's essentially saying if he remembers every sparrow, he certainly remembers you. You play an irreplaceable role in God's life. And I believe it's just as true that each of us have been given an indispensable role to play in this world. I want to challenge us, if I may, over the next several weeks to live like we believe this. To live up to who we are, to act as if God wants us, to play the role that he made us to play, as if if we didn't play it, it won't ever get done. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, I beg you to live in a way that is worthy of the people God has chosen to be his own. So, for instance, if you're a father, you're clearly indispensable to your children. No one else can be their father the way that you were made to be their father. Now, you have to realize that, and you have to live like that. You have to get up every day and, and, and act like you have a vital role to play, a role that can't be played by any other human being. And I think we need to bring this kind of thinking into every significant role in our lives, that we are indispensable. We're the person God called to do that thing. And if we don't do it, it's not going to be done the way God destined for it to be done. You know, so I've had the privilege of serving you as pastor of this church for 27 years. Um, if I were no longer here, and someday, of course, I won't be, this church will move on without me. I know that. I know that. I'm aware of that. Yet, I believe that I need to see myself as playing an essential role here, and that I need to get up every day and work like what I do is indispensable to the success of this church. I need to act like I believe God has called me to play a vital role. I know that God can figure out what to do without me, right? But that's not the way I should approach my life. That's not the way I should approach the callings, the assignments that God's given me in this world. I need to approach this like, I'm the guy God called to do that. And all of us have got roles like that in our lives. We are the one who for whatever reason, he's chosen to play that role. And we need to live as if, though we know God's got it all figured out, that if we don't do what we've been assigned to do, that the world will be less than it was meant to be. Are you living like a person that the world can't do without? So, uh, in the world of business, some people perform at a, at a level that causes them to be irreplaceable, it, at least apparently irreplaceable in whatever their role in that context. A number of years ago, I was uh, struck reading Jack Welch's book called Winning. And Jack uh, uh, was, was writing immediately after having retired from being the CEO of General Electric, the largest corporation for many, many years in the world. And in fact, some people have said there never needs to be another book on business ever written. I think Warren Buffett actually said that because this book is really amazing. And I uh, read Jack 
defending one of his most controversial concepts. It's the concept that many of you business folks would be very familiar with called differentiation. Jack's philosophy, which I'll go ahead and tell you is not the way that uh, I think about leadership, but nonetheless, he was pretty successful. Jack's philosophy uh, caused him to be called uh, derisively by a lot of people in the business world, Neutron Jack. Here's what Jack believed, and this is what they practice at GE and a lot of companies do. He believed that you should see people in terms of, first of all, the top 20%. He said that the top 20% of people in a, in a country should, uh, pardon me, in a, in a company should be showered with the top performance, should be showered with bonuses, stock options, praise, love, training, a variety of rewards to their pocketbooks and souls. Then he said you should then differentiate the next 70% of the people in your company. He said that managing the 70% is about training, positive feedback and thoughtful goal setting, identifying people with potential to move up and cultivating them. But then, and this is what caused so much controversy, he said you also needed to be able to figure out who the bottom 10% were in terms of performance, and every year the bottom 10% should be let go. And that's what they did at GE. He, he wrote, one of the best things about differentiation is that people in the bottom 10% of organizations very often go on to successful careers at companies and in pursuits where they truly belong and where they can excel. So I read that, I was on my, on my study intensive several summers ago and I was reading Winning. I'd happened to hear Jack speak at some huge conference and I was kind of fascinated by what he had to say. And I, when, I, when, so when I read about differentiation, I thought, man, wow, ouch, that's pretty tough. The bottom 10% gone every year. Now, as many of you know, pardon uh, the name dropping, but I guess I, uh, the first time I talked about this years ago, I didn't know Jack. I've gotten to know Jack and, uh, and, and spent time with Jack, and Jack absolutely loves people. And when he endorsed my book, The Hospital Believer, he called it a meaningful new approach to leadership. And I actually prefer my leadership theory around this more than his. I hope and doubt that he'll hear me say that. I know that he loves people. But when I first read this, I was, I was taken back by this idea that the bottom 10% every year, they're gone. And then I happened to read at the same time a book by probably the most famous Christian psychologist in the world, Henry Cloud. And Henry Cloud was writing a book called Necessary Endings About Transitions, and he brings up Jack Welch in this concept of, 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 of differentiation, and Henry Cloud, this Christian psychologist, writes, I do believe that there is some number of people in every organization in every life who will be routinely let go if leadership is doing its stewardship job. If no one ever, again, I'm not saying I agree with that, I'm just saying that th this is what he wrote. If no one ever leaves your organization or your life, then you are in some sort of denial and enabling some really sick stuff all over the place. So was Welch really a neutron? I will leave that for you to decide. If you are not firing someone at some time, something is probably wrong. Now, this kind of thing is a reality of life, this differentiation thing. Whether it is the official policy of a corporation or not, the fact is we differentiate ourselves as to whether or not we play the role that we've been assigned in the way it's supposed to be played. 
Each of us was made to be indispensable. We each have the potential of indispensability. But that doesn't mean we can just show up and punch the clock. For an example, as a husband, you are cast in an indispensable role in the story of your wife. But are you playing that role or just wearing a ring? As a teacher, you are an essential You have an essential part to play in the lives of your students. But are you teaching like that, or are you just ringing the bell? And I would say, as it concerns all things God, that God loves us unconditionally, but he expects us to play the role we were made to play. So you think Jack Welch is tough? You remember the story that Jesus told about the parable of the pounds? It really shows us a part of God that most of us would perhaps not like to talk about. He talks about how that the master, who's a type of Christ, gives to three of his uh, employees certain amounts of money, and he tells them to invest it while he's gone. And one of them takes what he's been given, as I remember it, and he multiplies, he doubles it. Another one uh, takes what he's been given and more than doubles it, as, as, as I remember correctly. And the other one takes what he's been given and he's afraid that he might risk what he's been given and lose it and so he hides it under his bed. Now, when the master shows back up, he didn't say, oh, everyone's the same here. In fact, he took the money under the bed and gave it to the top performer and rewarded the top performer and the next performer. And then he cast the other guy out of his kingdom and took took from him what he had and he cast him out of the kingdom. And then Jesus said, in fact, all four gospels have this passage. It's kind of unusual. It seems to be important. Jesus said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. In other words, suffice it to say, and it's not just here in Scripture. I mean, read the Proverbs, for instance, and so on. God expects us to perform. He doesn't base his love for us on that. Now, I'm not talking about whether or not we're saved, if you please. I'm not talking about what's necessary for us to be in right relationship with God. Jesus did what is necessary for us to be in right relationship with God. It's through faith in Jesus, by grace we are saved. Okay, let's settle that. But, but now we've been all given assignments. We've been appointed to do certain things. It matters whether or not we show up and perform at a high level and do the things God's called us to do the way it was meant to be done. I remember uh, when I first started thinking about this, uh, we, several years ago, sometime right around and then, I'm looking at some old notes of mine, uh, we, we had just taken Christian to Wheaton College uh, to, uh, to, I guess it would be football camp. And uh, a lot of you don't know that Christian, uh, some of you don't know that Christian is me and Sharon's son, 
but a lot of you, you think of, of Christian, you think somebody who's kind of academic, but Christian was athlete. Don't tell him I said this, though so he's sitting back there now, very embarrassed. I'm sure he should have warned him. He's a great athlete. He was an all-state quarterback, recruited by a number of schools, decided to go play football at, at Wheaton College, which is a great Christian college because he wanted to study theology and so on and so forth. And Wheaton uh, has a great D3 football program, perennially ranked in the top 10 and vying for the national championship and so on and so forth. And I remember when I got there and I met these coaches and when they were recruiting him, they were so nice, these nice Christian coaches. They talked about Jesus and they talked about love and they prayed together and all this kind of stuff. Now, our experience watching our two sons play football, uh, including Caleb playing college football, um, uh, is that most coaches, in fact, every coach I'd ever been around, when they try to motivate their players, they didn't talk about Jesus, unless they talked about Jesus in a way that they should have got struck by lightning. Their profanity-laced tirades would m try to motivate these kids to go out and risk their lives on the, on the football field. And I remember thinking, how in the world are these nice Christian coaches gonna motivate these kids to play against all these other schools that aren't Christian schools? How is this gonna work? Well, I learned that they love those kids and they love Jesus, but they expected those kids to show up and play. And they might have done it in an environment where they say, we love you whether you play well or not, but you're not gonna step on the field unless you bring it. And some, for some reason, I think so often people, when they think about Christianity, they get this picture of soft little nice people who just hang out and we're just the nice guy at work and hopefully, oh my, if we get promoted, oh well, and if we don't get promoted, oh, we just love Jesus and we're a bunch of wimps. That's not my view of Christianity. That's not what I read in scripture. God loves us unconditionally, unconditionally. It doesn't matter whether you perform well or not. He loves you the same, all right? You play an irreplaceable, you have an irreplaceable place in his heart, but you also have an indispensable role to play and he expects each one of us to show up. He expects us to bring it. He expects us to differentiate ourselves. He expects us to show up as husbands and wives and parents and as teachers and as business people and as athletes. He expects us to show up. You gotta hear the voice of Jesus saying, take the investment that I've put in you and make something of it. So, anyway. So to live out our indispensability, then, we must be choosable. Now, I would now say that we need, with the help of the Holy Spirit, because we can't play the role we were meant to play without the help of the Holy Spirit, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to be aware of and cultivate qualities that help us be indispensable. And that's what I uh, would like to talk about for the next several weeks if anybody will ever come back. So um, part of what we're going to do then is over the next five weeks is we're going to look at David, the second king of Israel, and a man after God's own heart as a model of indispensability. And this, will, so we'll come back and forth in and out of David's story 
over the next several weeks. I'm not sure that Dan will speak to it exactly that way next Sunday, but that's what I'll be doing by God's grace as I teach through the summer. Um, and we're going to try to figure out what it was that caused David to play such a unique role in, in, in God's economy that God called David a man after his own heart. And f- for some reason, David, David made himself choosable. This begins when Samuel the prophet was given an assignment by God to anoint the second king of Israel. Saul, the first king, uh, had blown it, and though he was still king, God started looking for a new one and found him in this guy named David. And, and most of you will remember the story <coughs> of how uh, God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. He says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel goes, and there were seven of Jesse's sons at home. And Jesse assumed when he met the first son, Eliab, if I remember correctly, that Eliab, who was evidently a, a big, tall, strong, good-looking man with a great resume, that Eliab would be the guy that God would choose. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so then uh, Jesse says, do you have another son? And sure enough, six more outstanding young men come and present themselves to Samuel, but none of them were the guy. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So David is chosen one out of eight, the least likely choice to be king. He was the youngest son. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He was the youngest son, which meant he had the worst job in the family. He, in my family, it was taking the trash out, but in David's family, it was uh, tending the sheep. And he's, he, and, 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 but this is the one God chose. Now, why did he choose him? Did he, now, David, by the way, evidently was a good-looking young man. He, he, had, he, 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 he was of fine appearance. In fact, uh, later, someone says of David in 1 Samuel 16, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's talented. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Now, but, but, but God didn't choose him because of those qualities. It's very clear in the story of Samuel standing there at, at Jesse's house that, that though that evidently God must have paid attention to those kinds of things, that that wasn't the thing that differentiated David. The thing that differentiated David was something that God saw in his heart. It was his heart that caused God, for whatever reason, and there's a lot of mystery around this, for whatever reason, God said, that's the guy I want. Again, sometimes people will misquote that passage. They'll say, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, he only looks at the heart. 
I, I think that, in fact, uh, you know, then it says David showed up and he was a fine-looking young man. I, I, I just think it's important that we don't overstate the point. It's not that there weren't other things that, that were important. It's, it's that that's not what caused David to be choosable. What caused David to be choosable was whatever it was that was going on in his heart. And this is why in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13 tells us that God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. The amplified paraphrase says that he raised up David to be their king. Of him he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, conforming to my will and purposes, who will do all my will. Suffice it to say, we all instinctively know this, there are qualities which set some people apart. And these qualities begin in the heart. And whatever those qualities are, I want them. I want God to look at me and say, like Samuel said to David, rise up and be anointed. Now, David ended up spending the rest of his life living up to that choice God made. He showed up again and again and proved himself indispensable. It doesn't mean he was perfect because he wasn't. There's a lot of humanity in David's story. He made his share of mistakes, some very famous ones. But at the end of the day, for some reason, God looked at David and said, that's the kind of guy I want. So six or seven years ago, and I'm almost done introducing this idea, and then I'll get into the substance of the talk today. Um, six or seven years ago, we spent about six months in a staff team uh, kind of exploration and project asking what kind of qualities make for indispensable people on our team here at TLCC? What kind of people do we want to be? What kind of people do we want to work with? What kind of people do we think best serve the mission of this church in the TLCC way? What kind of qualities do we look for when we hire and train and review and reward and then together as a team, we crafted what we now call the five eyes of indispensable people. And these are, I believe, qualities of the heart. It's not comprehensive, it's an approach to this. Uh, but I believe these are qualities of the heart that all of us should be aware of and ask the Holy Spirit to help us work towards, and I'm gonna dig into these. These five eyes are integral, inspired, initiating, intelligent, and insistent. And we've decided to share this uh, again. I actually shared some version of this six or seven years ago because of the potential value it has in our lives, our lives away from TLCC, and our lives here. So uh, I believe that we can intentionalize and develop qualities that cause God and people to say, Yes, I choose you. You are playing an indispensable role. So let's jump into the first eye for the rest of our time today. And by God's grace, we'll pick it up in coming weeks. So everybody doing okay? Three people over here are fine. I guess everybody else. <clears throat> integral people, integral people, the first eye, are indispensable because they, and I offer four kind of 
typical of me, too long definitions of what I think it means to be integral. The first is integral people are indispensable because they realize congruence in who they are, what they say, and what they do. Simple way of saying this would be to say that they have integrity. So to be integral has to do by definition with being composed of parts which together make up a whole. It is the state of completeness, of wholeness, of being undivided. One aspect of this is what we would commonly refer to as integrity. Integrity has to do with honesty and moral uprightness. But when I talk about what it means to be integral, I'm talking about more than just being honest and uh, being morally upright. Integrity, if it's just viewed in that way, I think sometimes can be viewed as a passive quality. Uh, so when, when asked a question, let's say we won't tell a lie. That's part of integrity, necessary to integrity, of course. But integrity is also an active quality, which has to do with holding deep convictions in the depth of who we are, speaking those convictions, and living those convictions out in a consistent and purposeful way. The I will not tell a lie thing is obvious and essential to our basic personhood especially if we're followers of Jesus. This should be a given for us. But that's not all that I'm referring to here because there are a lot of basically honest people who aren't living out their indispensability. I believe an integral person is not only basically honest but believes important truths in the depths of their being and speaks those truths and lives those truths out in the world around them. This takes us, again, from a passive integrity to an active integrity. Uh, so James Cousins, whose name I probably mispronounced, K-O-U-Z-E-S, and Barry Posner, in a, in a wonderful book about uh, coaching for leadership, had done a survey about the qualities that people look for in leaders. And they wrote, more than anything, people want leaders who are credible. Our findings are so consistent over such a long period of time that we've come to refer to this as the first law of leadership. So what exactly is credibility, they ask, and then they say, they do what they say they will do. This shows up every once in a while in our teachings around here. It shows up a lot in staff team meetings. We often just write on a board, D-W-Y-S-Y-W-D. It means do what you say you will do. Leadership, or pardon me, integrity is more than just what I won't do. It's more than just I'm basically a, a, a morally upright person. It's, 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 it's more than that. It's also acting in ways where we are living out who we mean to be and who we say we are. I think moral leadership at its core begins, of course, in who we are and then flows into what we say and do. 
So we have to, in order to be integral, have to be taking actions consistent with being a moral person. It's like James said. I believe it's James 4.17. He said, the person who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, to them it is a sin. It's, it's, not, it's not just, it's not just uh, sins of commission uh, that mess us up. It's sins of omission. To be integral, it's, it shows up in what we do. Now, we all unless you're, you know, the second coming of Jesus, we all have inconsistencies between what we say and what we do. We all have inconsistencies between what we are, mean to be, and what we say and what we do. Uh, uh, A number of years ago, I read a wonderful book by uh, Ken Blanchard. Ken uh, is the author of The One Minute Manager and uh, the, the best-selling business book in history, co-author, and he wrote this book along with Don Shula, the former coach of the Miami Dolphins. And Ken, who I, don't, I was thinking yesterday, it's amazing some of the people have been able to meet and get to know, Ken, who I've actually done some work with in the past, Ken uh, and Don Shula wrote about management by values. And a key part of management by values is that when someone establishes values as a leader in an organization, and they then conduct themselves in a way, either, either great or small, that doesn't uh, live up to the value, Ken's uh, coaching would teach that people in the organization were allowed to simply say, gap. And as soon as someone said, gap, then people would understand that they were perceiving a gap between the value that was established and the words that were being spoken or the way that someone was behaving. The fact is we all have gaps. I'll tell you how gaps show up in our organization a lot. Once every couple of weeks, I probably shouldn't admit this, now I'm gonna have people coming up saying this all the time, someone will say to me, that wasn't very hospitable. I'm glad you're smiling (laughs) because I'm thinking what an idiot I am to write about a type of leadership that I'm still working hard to actually live out in my own life. It'd be smarter for me just not to say what I think about it until I reach perfection. But every once in a while, someone will say to me, uh, uh, typically about some small thing, that wasn't very hospitable. It's their way of saying gap. The fact is, we all have gaps between who we want to be and what we want to do and what actually is happening. This should not keep us from proactively living out who it is we know we've been called to be, but we need to constantly be working towards closing the gaps. Theologically, that's called sanctification. Right? Sanctification is actually becoming in our daily conduct who God already says we are. If we were all waiting to be sanctified before we, you know, went out and tried to do anything for God, if you please, well, we'd all be waiting the rest of our lives because it's a lifelong process where there's a sanctification thing that's happening in our lives kind of in every role that we play, gaps between who we are and who we know we need to be, an integral person is working hard to close those gaps. David had integrity. God chose David because he knew that David had a heart that was after God. 
The 78th Psalm says that he chose David. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. But again, this doesn't mean that David was perfect. He struggled at times, famously at times, to be a good man, to say the right things, and to do the right things. But, but I think what God loved about David was he was sincere about his failures. Now, sometimes he had to be confronted about them. But when it's all said and done, he would come around and say, man, I really need God to help me because, you know, I, I have some gaps here. First Chronicles 29, David said, I know my God that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. In the 26th Psalm, David says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. So we have a high standard, if we're, we should have, that we set for ourselves in our, the organizations we lead and the classrooms that we work in. And in our family, we set high standards. And we know that there are gaps. We're not we're aware of them, not satisfied with them, and we're asking God to help us live with complete integrity. Here's the second way that being integral helps us live out our indispensability. It's that integral people see themselves as part of the whole and as essential to the whole. They are team players. So integral people see themselves as part of the whole and as essential to the whole. So an integral person sees themselves as necessary but a part. And there's some nuance there that I think is really important. In other words, an integral person who's trying to be indispensable knows that they're needed. They bring it every day to every significant role in their life like they're the only person who could possibly do this thing. But they know in the deepest part of who they are that in order for them to be successful and for the team to be successful, they understand that they're just a part of something bigger than they are and that other people are playing indispensable roles as well. They are an integral part. David's integrity was mentioned was was manifest in this dimension of what it means to be integral as well. It was on one hand knowing that he'd been called by God, but on the other hand, seeing his place in the bigger scheme of things. This is how someone can be both indispensable and humble at the same time. And um, so David, as most of you are aware, was chosen to be king some 15 years before he actually was given the throne. And during those 15 years, he had to submit himself to a toxic leader, the first king of Israel, Saul. And the way that David handled that relationship is a beautiful manifestation of integral, where you understand on one hand you play a necessary role, on the other hand you understand you're not the only person in the world and the world does not revolve around you. Uh, As you will remember, Saul was very jealous of David and David's success. Remember 
When David killed Goliath and he and the army came marching back home, uh, they were met out on the road by, 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 by women singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Uh, 1 Samuel 18 said that Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house. While David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll, spin, I'll pin David to the wall. And he tried this, in fact, twice. And David, Scripture said, eluded him. Now, David was a powerful warrior, and he had every right to pull the spear out of the wall and throw it back. But part of David's heart was that he didn't throw spears back. He didn't get caught up in a cycle of revenge. Even though he knew the throne was rightfully his, he had a sense of timing, a sense of place, a sense of honor, even for a leader who had become a toxic leader. And David was determined to wait until God promoted him. David was not into self-promotion. Doesn't mean that he wasn't ambitious. There's every reason to see that David was in fact ambitious, knew he'd been called to be king, intended to be king, but at some point when he couldn't handle Saul anymore, he just quietly exited the scene. He didn't incite a rebellion, which he could have. There were some other people that got exiled as well who ended up following him, but part of being integral is that you understand that you have to submit yourself sometimes to something bigger than yourself and trust that God will work things out without you needing to play God for him. David had opportunities. He had opportunities to kill Saul. There's a famous opportunity where Saul shows up in a cave that David's hiding in, and David could have killed him. But instead, after Saul left the cave, David yelled at him from a distance, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. It's a powerful principle. It's not talked about often enough. The idea that authority comes from God. The idea that we have to assume that people are in places because for whatever reason God decided they would be there. We are not king topplers. We are humble servants who even though we know God has made us who we are, we're careful and cautious and we're not critical. We're not judgmental. We stand back and say, let the Lord judge between me and you. Now it didn't mean that David didn't speak truth to power, he did. He said, Saul, you're wrong right? But he didn't throw spears back. Integral people have an awareness of their calling, but they play the role they've been given in a way that serves others and serves the greater cause, that refuses to judge or jostle or throw spears. 
They're serving a larger mission than themselves. They understand the world does not revolve around them. We have to see ourselves as indispensable at the same time that we get over ourselves. As Ken Blanchard said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. We do what we were made to do in this world, but we refuse to do it in a way that where it looks like we think everything revolves around us. Now I'll just mention, but won't get into the last two parts of being integral. And then I'm gonna just ask you to stand and we'll, we'll say a couple comments and dismiss everybody today. Um, integral leaders practice reciprocal candor and protect the integrity of the team. That's the third thing that I wanna talk about and will talk about, about what it means to be integral. And then finally, integral leaders have structural integrity. All the disparate parts of their lives are integrated into a healthy whole. They are solid, emboldened by challenges, and refined by pressure, and tough times make them stronger. Lord willing, here in a couple of weeks, we'll pick this back up, um, and I think I'd rather do that than go grossly over time today. Uh, capital G on the grossly. Uh, and, um, and I hope that the things that we're teaching will be helpful. Let me, let me finish with this. Here's what I'd like to leave you with today. It's where the Apostle Paul prayed in his letter to the Thessalonians, may God himself the God of peace sanctify you through and through. What does it mean to sanctify? To sanct, you know, sanctification is the, is the process. Once we've been justified or come to faith in Jesus, made just, counted just by God, sanctification is the, is the lifelong process. We're, be, we're becoming more and more like the person that God said we are. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. One of my concerns always when I do this kind of talk is that sometimes we think then we have to get busy to be a better person and we have to go out there and we have to just get better. Well, th th that's a proper attitude to an extent. We have to understand though that as believers, our lives are centered around the gospel and the gospel is about what Jesus did that we can't do. And one of the things that Jesus can do that we can't do is that he sanctifies us. And God is faithful and he will do it. So we're aware of the gaps in our lives. We feel that it's necessary to go and become the person God called us to do, but ultimately we say, Father, sanctify me, holy, spirit, soul, and body. Sanctify me through and through. And then we say, as Paul said, faithful is he who will do it. See, God, is at work in our lives, if we'll let him be at work in our lives, making us the people that he called us to be. And it's because of his work that we have a shot at playing the role God assigned us to play in this world. Would you please stand with me?